this is where we're going to get killed the most, or I'm going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> I have very scrupulously avoided fashion in the other movies. I, 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 made, I made the Princess Leia, you know, very, very simple, just mm. completely simple. No design, no fashion, no nothing. And this time we're walking right into a fashion statement, <laughs> head on. When I first started in the film, we were going to have three costumes for the Queen. And um, as time went on, George decided that every time we saw the Queen that she was going to have a different costume. At our busiest, we were using maybe 50, 60 people just in the costume department. I think we made um, well over a thousand costumes. In fact, we made everything, really, that's, that's seen everything, hats, helmets, costumes. In the other films I've uh, been involved with, it's always been a very, very simple wardrobe. Uh, and this became a very complex, very designed, wardrobe, very fashionable wardrobe. I just think the grey costumes, I think Ewan looks fantastic in his. He looked good in yours. Oh, like he looked fantastic. It's good for like the effect of the film, as long as it doesn't like give me brain damage or anything, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> I think people will be amazed by the costume. The images are so haunting and so beautiful. Um, and I think it's something that they've never seen or witnessed before in a, a pre any previous Star Wars film. Points is Jason. And this is Gabe. It's Phantom Menace Year. Phantom Menace Year. Phantom Menace Year. Month 10 of Phantom Menace Year. <laughs> Double digit Phantom Menace Year months. Man, we're so close to the end. <laughs> Feels like we just started. Does Phantom Menace Year ever really end, though? Every year's Phantom Menace Year. When when we reach the end of 2019, Phantom Menace Year will kind of end, but kind of not. There's always 2029. So this month for Phantom Menace Year, we are talking all about the costumes of the Phantom Menace, the vital part of Episode 1. The first time we ever saw the costumes, like what this movie was going to look like and what people were wearing. It's like, ooh, it was like your first clear sign. This it's going to be a little different. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like everything about Phantom Menace was big and huge and outrageous and over the top. And the costumes were just as big and outrageous and over the top as everything else. And I think we forget when thinking about the making of Phantom Menace, like with the original trilogy, you had Lucas and John Williams and Ben Burt trying kind of being the three 
heads of Star Wars-ness, but with the prequels, Trisha Baker really is on equal footing with those three because the costumes are such a huge part of the look and feel of the prequels and such a huge part of how big those movies are. Like, there's so much more of everything, more visual effects, more story, more everything and costumes as maybe the most of everything as much as you know oh there's 2000 effect shots or whatever but there's like thousands of costumes with colors never seen in a star wars film before <laughs> right well we're going to be getting deep with the costumes in just a little bit but it's month 10 of Phantom menace here but month 10 that means it's october and that can mean only one thing it's the return of snoketoberfest <laughs> You thought we threw it down that reactor shaft, but (laughs) surprise, surprise, he's back. It's back. It's the best time of the year. It's the party that never stops. The party was going on all year. It just went underground. It went underground, dude. (laughs) Yeah, only in in October when it gets spooky can it come back above ground. Uh, So last year for Snoketoberfest... It was the Snoke line of the week. This year in 2019, we're doing something a little different. Just like how Snoke got cut in half, we're cutting it. In, we're cutting <laughs> the line in half, and we're gonna have the Snoke word of the week. So every single week in October, what we're gonna have for Snoketoberfest is the Snoke word of the week. So I wonder what's the Snoketoberfest word of the week this week? Hmm. Wrongly. All right, that that was definitely a word. <laughs> there was a word said by Snoke in the Star Wars movie. And lucky for us, it won't be the last word, because Snoketober is a whole month. There's five Tuesdays in October, so you've got four more Snoke words of the week. We might get a Rise of Skywalker trailer. In October. That's the word. That's the street beat. That's what the kids are saying out there. Doesn't matter. Even if we do, still going to be Snoketoberfest. (laughs) Nothing stops the Snoketober train. The cops show up, try and bust the Snoketoberfest party, and then the cops just start dancing too. That's what happens. It's like a tractor beam that just grabs your booty and just pulls you into the party. (laughs) (laughs) Snoke calls it the booty beam. That's what his little magical viewfinder was in the red room. His booty window. Spooky dudes, bring me the booty beam. <laughs> it's time to party. <laughs> oh, Snoketoberfest. I know we, we normally don't do like news during Phantom Menace Year episodes, but something happened last week. Some news broke that... Is it's just huge for Star Wars news. Someone coming into the saga that had all the fans talking, people freaking out. What does this mean for the future of Star Wars? What's going on? People are excited. People can't stop talking about it. I think you know who we're talking about coming into Star Wars. That's right. We're talking about Babu Frick. This is Babu Frick. is one of my 
truly favorite characters out of the whole movie, and I'm not yeah. sure I can go further than We that. know that he is a droid builder, and that is all we know about him right now. Yeah. Um, It's something marvelous coming to Star Wars. <laughs> it's a, an alien the size of C-3PO's head who may fix droids or build droids. They're doing, last week, they're doing that Triple Force Friday presentation thing where they're showing off all the new toys. They bring out the action 3PO figure. I think it was like days before, there was like, I think on Yak Face, there was a thing like C-3PO. Black Series C-3PO coming with an extra Babu Frick figure. And everyone's like, what the heck is Babu Frick? And then Anthony Carboni is showing (laughs) the the tiniest little Babu Frick. There's going to be so many sad people who lose their Babu Frick. And I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to have to super glue him to like 3PO's shoulder or something so I don't lose him. Oh my god. If you weren't already excited about the Rise of Skywalker, there's a tiny, like, little, like... <laughs> like a miniature old man. <laughs> He's like the inverse of Snoke. We got, we got, we're done with the giant old man. Now we're getting the little tiny old man. The yin and yang of old men. <laughs> and I swear, like, the little, the little itty-bitty tiny Babu Frick figure... I swear he's smiling. He's just happy to be there. Do you think he rides in Chewie's bag? Does he, like, climb on Chewbacca's fur? Does he ride on BB-8, like, uh, Gascon or whatever? And uh, maybe there, JJ finally watched a Sunny Day in the Void. He's like, I need that. I need that in my film. He's probably going to be a puppet. I can only... I, I'm, ter- I'm terrified and excited at the same time to think about what his voice sounds like. Yeah, I'm not going to have time to think about kylo or ray or any 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 other uh excitement in episode nine it's gonna be trying to figure out what what's babu frick gonna sound like how's he gonna move does he have a little spaceship he flies <laughs> a very very small little rocket ship will we get to see him eat something like a, a just a giant piece of fruit he has to try to eat i can't believe his name is babu b-a-b-u babu the tiny little alien that builds droids I secretly, I hope like Paul McCartney is doing his voice. Let's get real weird. Yeah. yeah why, why hasn't Paul McCartney done a voice yet? And yeah, Bob, it's like, JJ's like, I, I really wanted to get Paul McCartney. So I had to make a character just for him. Babu Frick. <laughs> Maybe he sings. Maybe he has a little tiny keyboard that he plays. That's a one. Superb Paul McCartney impersonation there. Well, no, that was just a, an A1 superb Babu Frick impersonation. <laughs> That's the voice Paul McCartney's going to do when he voices Babu Frick. Not the last we've heard of you, Babu. <laughs> yes, Babu, I love you. <laughs> He's Babootiful. You're so Babootiful. <laughs> Uh. On the first films, uh, I purposely avoided uh, very intense design cultures. At our busiest, we were using maybe 50, 60 people just in the costume department. I think we made um, well over a thousand costumes. In fact, we made everything, really, that's, that's seen. Everything, hats, helmets, costumes. 
it was extraordinary to stand in front of the mirror with all my wardrobe on and stuff. Because I was Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, and it was quite a, it was quite a moment for a young man. So kind of like we were saying at the, the top of the episode, Star Wars had always had amazing costumes. Back in 1977, when the movie came out, those costumes, even back then, were unlike anything anyone had ever seen in a science fiction movie before. We take it for granted now, kind of. I feel like the genius of John Mallow's costume design. Well, yeah, because they were intentionally designed to not draw attention to themselves, yet were designed so perfectly that when you did finally, 10th time watching the movie, just start to focus on the costumes... They were interesting enough to where people are still talking about the costumes 40 years later. They're like the perfect blend of just simplicity, some some out of necessity and some out of just clever design. Well, a lot of the costumes of the original trilogy are, and George Lucas talks about this a lot, are on purpose not flashy. They don't stand out on your first viewing. They, they're, they're part of something that moves the story forward. Probably most of anything. Oh, and similar to John Barry's set design, because of just the impact of that movie, they've kind of been incorporated into everything that's come since and are part of that it feels Star Wars look that even if it's not an exact copy of Luke's like karate gi shirt, almost anything you can find in in a Star Wars movie, at least one Star Wars movie is going to have some costumes that have that like overlapping chest uh fold in the in it even if it's not exactly what luke would be wearing like the those angles and and designs just kind of have seeped into everything that's come since then jackets star wars and jackets (laughs) rogue one is a, a lot of amazing things but one thing rogue one does perfectly is it's got a lot of outstanding jackets and like Really cool jackets started in A New Hope. Ponchos. Every Star Wars movie, somebody's got to wear a poncho. Pants with stripes on them. Boots. Really high boots. The way holsters fit. Random people wearing capes. That's true. Especially, you might think, oh, capes didn't start till Lando. But Biggs was rocking that cape from the very beginning. Biggs was showing up on a desert planet with a mustache and a cape. Letting everybody know he's not living on Tatooine anymore. <laughs> yeah, you see this cape? I didn't buy that here. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big city cape. You want some of this, you got to join the rebellion. And the winner is John Mallow for Star Wars. And what we did right at the beginning, and this applies to all the main characters, we went to Burns. their stock costumes. We dressed, we took a model with us, camper, and we dressed the various characters up to the nearest approximation which we could find out of, out of stock. And then we photographed them and showed them to George. Now, for instance, Darth Vader, we knew that he was all black and that he was leathery and he had a big black cloak, etc. And we dressed model up in some motorcycle gear with a German steel helmet on and a gas mask and a monk's cloak and you know we took bits from every single department of Burns and sort of mocked it up and then we had a big meeting with George and Gary and 
be hammered out in each costume and decided, you know, where we would go from there. But yeah, Phantom Menace was, it's a new era of both on screen and off. Phantom Menace was, like we've said, I think every single month on Phantom Menace year, the movie wasn't as concerned with linking up perfectly with what we had seen before. It didn't want to give us more of the same. It was bold. It was new. It was different. The costumes were bold, new, and different. This was a totally new thing for Star Wars. Some of the first images I feel like we saw were Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala. And even that, like, I think we we bring this kind of thing up every month with Phantom Menace here. Like, when we first started to see things from that, it was just like, wow. It was either really exciting for people or really terrifying because it was like, that doesn't look like Star Wars, but it looks weird. So maybe that's Star Wars, you know? Well, there's a great quote from Ian McKegg from that time about, he says, when we started work on episode one, we didn't know how to go back in time from the first trilogy. Our initial thought was to make it more primitive, but we eventually decided that its past was our past. Going back to the Victorian era, when everything was handmade, the work of an artist, and made expressly for the person who would wear it. The further back you went, the more elaborate things got, which would contrast nicely when we caught up to the very machined, very uniformed look of episodes four through six. So it's one of those just perfect situations where they needed... A different look because they wanted it to set apart from the previous films and they wanted something bigger and bolder and it made sense to to do that because that just subconsciously does give you a feeling of you know the olden days when people wore ridiculous oversized over engineered costumes like any kind of period movie that you know they make them every year and they'll make them till the end of time of just there's a style to that and bringing that into star Wars, just, it just kind of works as, you know, star Wars being a mix of everything. Why not throw in Victorian era period films? It's one of the reasons I've always loved this movie so much that it stands on its own apart from everything else where this is literally, this is the only movie kind of tech of the clones starts to a little bit, but not so much. This is the only Star Wars movie where there isn't an active war going on in the Star Wars. This is, we're not to the Galactic Civil War yet. And Phantom Menace is still in a time of general peace, really. There's the Phantom Menace literally out there growing, but nobody's at war in this movie. There's a battle, there's a space battle at the end, but it's not a war. It's like a little, it's like a little situation, you know? (laughs) Well, and time wise, too, it's even 10 years before. Attack of the Clones even. So it's like, this is the golden age, the good old days. This is, you know, the planet of Naboo was spending all their money on just dressing cool (laughs) and not worrying about having a big army and fighting a war. And, you know, everyone just went down to the tailor and had some clothes made. If you want to go down to the lake country and go swimming and dry yourself on the rocks on Naboo, you got time to do it. There's not stormtroopers breathing down your neck at this time. You know, like, so I've always said... If I could pick any time in any era to go live in Star Wars, I'd I'd go live in Phantom Menace time, go hang out in Naboo and just be real chill. Well, and it's cool that it carries kind of over to the whole film. Like on one hand, you could say, well, that's kind of how Naboo is. 
but everybody's like that back then. I mean, the Nimodians, they're all, they're rich business people. They're wearing ornate robes and headdresses and things. And, and we go to the center of the galaxy on Coruscant. And of course it's full of senators and aristocrat type people who are all dressed over the top as well. And it's just, yeah, it, get, it makes Phantom Menace its own thing that is Star Wars, but it's its own thing. And the thing that's great about it and the thing that can make it hard for people to maybe feel like it's it's not the Star Wars they remember, but that's just part of the charm. And like we were saying, the costumes, much like the music, much like so many of these these things in Star Wars, and especially in Phantom Menace, are telling us the story. This is the era we're in. Like, remember how people looked in the original trilogy? Remember how everything was dirty? People were scraping by and everyone's just wearing gray or flight suits and stuff. We're far away from that here. And how do we get to there? Right. It sets the tone right from the beginning of the film of, wait, this isn't what I remember. How do we get to what I remember? What's going to happen? Where, why isn't it like this in the original trilogy? What's going to happen? Because Phantom Menace was the first Star Wars film with costumes done on this level, it set the course, I I personally feel like, not only for the rest of the prequels, of course, with a style and a look, because thankfully we had Trisha Bigger, who we're going to talk a, a lot more about coming up here, was the costume designer for episodes two and three. But I feel like the the costume influence that started in The Phantom Menace is still something felt even in the newer Star Wars films. I mean, you can see it in the sequel films we've had so far. I, th- I feel like you can see it all up and down in Solo, in Rogue One. There's more of a freedom to be a bit more outlandish in what Star Wars costumes can possibly be. And I think that was started with taking more of a chance with Phantom Menace. Probably the best examples in the in the sequel trilogy are even just Kylo Ren as far as he's, you know, he's dressed all in black, but just the, the textures and the fabrics they use to make a costume that's all black is definitely, you can see its roots in Back to Phantom Menace of just going with bold fabrics that have very textured surfaces that catch the light. And, you know, it's not like Luke's Jedi, Return of the Jedi outfit where he's just kind of wearing black it's like his pants are one pattern or you know kylo's pants are one pattern and his jacket's another and his arms have the pleats in it and just yeah really going all out with the fabrics that you would choose canto bites a good example of even though they limited themselves to just black and white and red it feels like star wars and it feels like star wars because you're used to that from what the prequels did especially phantom menace yeah, there, there was always something when Last Jedi came out, and they're like that Canto Bite part in the middle feels like the prequels, maybe. But then it just feels like Star Wars because the the prequels are Star Wars too. Like, right? It's like this is our first time getting back to the opulent, rich, wealthy people in the universe that we saw, we last saw, you know, thirty years or more ago in the universe that they're still there. This is where they are. They're on Canto Bight. And of course they're going to look like the prequels. Yeah. It's star Wars. That's what rich people in star Wars look like just because we're used to seeing Palpatine who just, who never wants to get a new bathrobe. Doesn't mean that other people don't dress up. Well, even Snoke's gold robe, 
would we be bold enough to say, here's a giant, like, eight-foot-tall CG wrinkled prune man, and he's wearing a shiny gold robe and gold slippers and a big ruby ring? Yeah, because you wouldn't go from Empire Strikes Back and think, well, we're going to put this guy in a, a shiny golden velvet outfit maybe rise of skywalker palpatine's gonna come out oh i'm afraid i got a new robe yeah yeah maybe he had a he had a suitcase with his uh his prequel clothes he's like i i don't quite fit into them anymore but they're close enough it's all i got well it all starts when i'm writing the screenplay when i'm writing i have to create uh different planets that the adventures take place on and then each of those planets has to have its own culture so then I work to develop a culture for each planet. And then I have a group of artists that work with me. And then that gets turned over to Trish. And then Trish has to figure out how to make it real and how to make it move, how to make it comfortable to sit in. She worries about everything. Where we, everything, <laughs> yeah. We've ended up using fabrics from everywhere. Um, we bought fabrics in the States and New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. Uh, there's a big trade show in Paris twice a year. We've bought fabrics from Japan, China, India, and really all over. All of this, all the magic of the prequels and the costumes and the legacy of these prequel costumes and the beauty of these prequel costumes, all this is because of the genius of Trisha Bigger, costume designer, even 20, 20 years after The Phantom Menace and 14 years after Revenge of the Sith. I feel like Trisha Bigger's name does not come up as often as it should. Like we were saying in the beginning, like like the Ben Burtz or even like the Dennis Murins or the John Knowles or these these people that are these behind the scenes people that are so responsible for what we know of as Star Wars and and what do we know about Trisha Bigger? Who who is Trisha Bigger? How did she come into all this? Well, Trisha Bigger was born in Glasgow, Scotland. Um, she was trained at the Wimbledon School of Art. After that, she worked with several uh, British theater companies, such as the Opera North and Leeds and Glasgow Citizens Theater. After that, she moved into television and was nominated for a BAFTA for the miniseries The Fortunes and Misfortunes of Moll Flanders. She also made a few British films, such as Wild West and Silent Scream. And at some point after that, she got sucked up into the young Indiana Jones show, where a lot of the prequel people kind of met and met George Lucas and kind of got their feet wet in this whole crazy Lucasfilm thing. There's a great quote from Rick McCollum of how he came to work with her, and it's perfect Rick McCollum. It's somewhat, it's equal parts creepy and sweet. <laughs> he says while he was working with George on the first season of the young Indiana Jones Chronicles uh, back in 92, 93, he said he was traveling a lot and spending a good deal of time in Czechoslovakia and England. While he was in Prague, he met David Brown, who became a production supervisor and a good friend of Rick's. And Rick says during one break, he went home to Glasgow and came back with pictures of the weekend. And in one of them was this stunning woman, breathtaking and elegant. I asked him who she was, and he said, her name is Trisha Bigger. She's a friend of mine, and she's a costume designer. And that was it. <laughs> uh, I, you know, you can, you can almost hear Rick McCallum telling this. So I was in Prague. <laughs> Dude, the whole weekend I was in Prague. And my friend showed me pictures, and I said, she's just awesome. 
We got to have her on the greatest TV show ever made young indie. It sounds like they had a good relationship. There's another quote from Rick where he says, uh, in fact, nothing gave me greater pleasure than her looking at me one day and saying, and she said it in such a sweet way, Rick, you do have your own unique style, but I've been blessed in being able to travel all over the world. And so I can truly honestly say without any hesitation whatsoever that you are the worst dressed human being I have ever met. <laughs> Fancy that. Trisha thinks I'm a human being. And this is coming from someone who worked with George Lucas every day personally. <laughs> well, he's, yeah, he's kind of going on. Lucas has a look and he's sticking to it. You've got to admire that. But we know very little about McCallum's fashion sense, really. Polo shirts and scarves, right? Isn't that what he's <laughs> But that's just when we've seen him like on interviews and he puts on like a polo shirt. We don't know what's we don't know what else is going on. He could have like he could have like clown shoes on or that's, something or That's true. Barefoot. <laughs> he could get up from an interview and put on like a a tuxedo jacket with tails over his polo shirt. Dude, I do what I want. Maybe that's why him and Lucas got along so well. <laughs> that's how that's how they were able to get so much packed into those movies. They didn't spend any time thinking about getting dressed or clothes. They just wore the same thing every day. Do you think McCallum ever tried to get Lucas to wear a polo shirt? Could you imagine George Lucas in a polo shirt? Oh, no. I'm trying to picture it in my head. Have we seen? There's got to be a picture of him in a polo shirt somewhere. With like a Lucasfilm logo embroidered on it or something. <laughs> oh, there probably is. Because right. we've, we've seen him in a just a normal button-up shirt. Seen him in a tux. We've seen him in a t-shirt. The making of New Hope, we saw him in a sweater. I bet she had a polo shirt under one of those sweaters. Maybe it's like even that for Lucas. Like, you know, you write from what you know. A long time ago, decades ago, he used to wear sweaters. And it's like the Phantom Menace where people used to dress more elaborately. Now he just, you know, he's got the flannels, he's got the jeans, he's got the the Nike Monarchs, and sometimes when he goes to, like, a premiere, he puts a sport coat over the flannel. Maybe Ray's costume design is based on Lucas. I've never thought of that, and that <laughs> is... Yeah, people always like, how come Ray wears the same thing in each movie? Uh, I wonder why. <laughs> she did, her, her boots are the Nike Monarchs of the Star Wars universe. People are like, why does she still have her yeah. staff? Once you're comfortable, why change? You know, it's one thing to be able to draw something on a piece of paper and another thing to actually make it three-dimensional and work. Uh, but Trisha couldn't do that. She had to actually deal with it and make it work in the real world. I think you quite like the idea of being able to see through it. Yeah. I think uh, four inches on the center backs. So there was a lot of redesigning that had to go on. So this is red. And a lot of working with different types of fabrics. Really pretty intense. Different kinds of materials, uh, different kinds of jewelry, and make it all fit together. So after that, she meets Lucas at Skywalker Ranch in the fall of 1996, and they start talking about episode one. Uh, she begins working closely with the concept art team, including Ian McKaig, Dermot Power, and Stian Dalslet. So she begins kind of trying to translate the concept team's sketches into something that's actually physically able to be not only made, but worn and moved in and also just starting to track down fabrics. She spends a lot of time going to fabric shows, uh, building relationships with the dealers because they have to buy so much fabric that they end up, you know, buying it directly from the places in China or other countries where they're actually making these exotic fabrics. 
It's like that makes me think. I wonder if part of the reason why Trisha Bigger's name isn't as thrown around as much as Doug Chang or something, the concept that it was the it was the Ian McKeggs and the Doug Changs that were designing the costumes and not her. I mean, even when we went to the exhibit in Detroit last year, you know, there would be Obi Wan and. Darth Maul and Qui-Gon's costume and then there would be the Ian McKeg art on the wall and perhaps her role is you know is isn't talked about as much as vitally important as she was you know yeah because that's I think the it's one of those things it's almost like visual effects in a way where people just think well they hit the the CG button and made some computer graphics and it's stupid is just how complex and complicated the costume designer job is, and especially on something like Phantom Menace, like think about the fact that she had to take these beautifully drawn designs, not only make them work in three dimensions in reality, but yeah, figure out where to even buy the materials to make that and then coordinate dozens and dozens of people. Her team size, it says varied at times up to 120 people would be working on costumes at one time and organizing all these people to make all this stuff that not only is beautiful and works, but it's done on time so they can film that doesn't fall apart. And if it does fall apart, you know, fix it. Like it's, I can't, I think I would just disintegrate and like melt down the drain if I had to try to keep all that stuff straight. I would just hide. I'd come out for lunch or something. Be like, where were you all day? Oh, no, I was busy. Yeah. I was over there, over there for a little while. You didn't see me because I'm really fast. I got to go. George Lucas says, it's one thing to design and sketch a costume on paper and quite another to actually build it. Trisha and I would sit down and look at the designs trying to figure out how they would work in reality. She'd point to something on the drawing and ask, what's that? And I'd say, it's a pencil flare. Well, a pencil flare looked great in a drawing, but it couldn't be translated into the real thing. Trisha had a huge job in just translating all of these designs into cloth and fabric and materials that would actually work and not look silly. I think that is vitally important that it doesn't look silly because you could imagine, you know, you look through the art of the Phantom Menace book. We did that whole episode about the art of Phantom Menace and all of it. It could have looked ridiculous very easily and managing all those people. I can't even imagine. And like still tying it in such subtle ways to what we saw in the previous films. Like though, and by the time Phantom Menace was gearing up, those costumes had become so iconic. The echoes in Shmi's costume to Luke Skywalker's costume, and then Anakin's to Luke, and the Jedi to Obi Wan. Like I don't like like we say, I can't even imagine the impossibleness of that job. Well, it's one of those things you think about too. If you've gone to like. I don't know, like a if your kids have a dance show or something and there's like stage costumes where they kind of look good from 100 feet away, but you look at them up close and they're just kind of like garish looking and, and sparkly and just kind of over the top, maybe not in a good way, that all the costumes in the prequels could have looked like that. <laughs> kind of not like something that a real queen or senator would be wearing and the fact that her team was able to take these completely fantastical designs and make them look like you found them. You're in a museum, like seeing them in a museum, like we did, like they just look like you're at the, a regular old history museum. Like, Oh, look, there's queen Elizabeth's dress from the 1800s or 
kind of thing. It's like it just looks like it's a real thing. And maybe that's why when we did the thing in Detroit last year, maybe that's why our brains completely broke in half. (laughs) Because it was like we were walking through a historical exhibit of the Star Wars. This was all real. What, you're telling me Mon Mothma wasn't real? Here's her clothes. Like... Well, and maybe that's a reason that that it just kind of people don't it doesn't register how just incredible it is that these costumes exist and they exist in the amounts that they do because it's just they just look right. And it's like, well, yeah, they're just they just went and got those costumes because they there's just clothes like that around. <laughs> they they just look real. As fantastical as they are, they look they look real. They serve the story. Yeah, that's the queen of Naboo, and uh, that's her soldiers back there. There's Panaka, <laughs> and there's Seal Bibble. He's got a crazy beard, and he's dressed pretty crazy, too, because that's what's going on here. That's just the way it is. Trisha didn't do it all alone. She had some help in her costume department. Uh, she was joined by assistant costume designer Michael Mooney, costume supervisor Nicole Young, prop supervisor Ivo Coveney, and cutters Kay Coveney and Jillian Libert. And I believe that was her kind of core team through all of the prequels. But for Phantom Menace, they set up in 97 and leaves in studios in London, just kind of right next to where they were filming. Almost all of the costume fabrication was done there over a period of eight months. Um, Like I said earlier, the team varied from 80 people to up to 120 people, depending on what stage of filming they were in. And in addition to everything we talked about with just working with George, to make sure the costumes were visually what they needed to be. They also had to be constantly adjusting colors because based on the color of the set, you would have to potentially adjust the colors of the costumes to make sure that the characters could be seen. And you don't want someone to be wearing a red dress that's exactly the same color as the red walls. Um, And also working with Nick Gillard and the stunt team to make sure that the actors could move comfortably and the stunt performers could move comfortably in the costume so it's not just aesthetics they not only have to look real they have to you have to be able to fight with a lightsaber in them but overall she spent eight years working on the prequels and her team made just for the phantom menace over 1100 costumes insane like almost a decade yeah it's a lot of costumes a lot of time (laughs) well the crazy thing too with the costumes is what i think people don't think about is like well look there's obi-wan's costume and there's pod Padme's dress. But depending on what they're doing in the movie, there might be 10 versions of Obi-Wan's costume because at this point in the movie, it's dirty. And at this point in the movie, it's clean. And at this point in the movie, it's ripped. Or his stunt double needs three versions because they might rip one on set. So maybe they're going to make 15 versions or 16 versions of Obi-Wan's costume. And some of these super elaborate things, I just can't imagine you make one and it's like, okay, time to make four more. There's actually a great part they're talking about how they got all this great fabric for the Jedi robes. And I think when they were filming the when they jump into the water, one of the water scenes, either when they're jumping in or swimming in the tank, the fabric couldn't handle the water. And literally while they were filming before their eyes, the robes were shrinking. So for every take, they'd have to grab a fresh robe because by the end of filming a couple takes, the robe would have shrunk to the point where I guess it was up to their knees. When I first started in the film, we were going to have three costumes for the Queen. 
And um, as time went on, George decided that every time he saw the Queen that she was going to have a different costume. Somebody of that stature would automatically be changing her costumes to fit the occasion. She travels, she goes to the Senate, she has sort of official functions and non-official functions. And each one of those demands a different type of, uh, of costume. So when you're thinking about costumes of the Phantom Menace, the big one, the big one everyone always remembers, the big standouts in that movie are the Queen's dresses. I think we said it before earlier. It was all over the trailers right away. And it was the one thing you saw where you're like, oh, this is this is going to be really different. And, and the one thing I like with with. All the amazing, incredible, outrageous Amidala dresses, everyone has their favorite, which is really kind of interesting. Like fans of the prequels in episode one, everyone has their own Amidala dress that they're really drawn to that stands out to them. Get which If you had to pick one Amidala dress that is your personal favorite, which one would you pick? It's a tie between the two red ones. The one we first see her on the uh, view screen on the ship. And then the one from the Senate. They're similar but different. I don't think I can choose one of those two. Yeah, the throne room is the classic. That's Amidala didn't even get a whole lot of action figures. Queen Amidala didn't. There was a Padme action figure when Phantom Menace first came out. But I remember that one, the throne room gown. Well, and I remember seeing that costume at the costume exhibit. And that one being kind of... It was crazy to see in person. It was crazy. It was so tiny. It was crazy. I didn't even think about that. The bubble things light up. There were like wires running through the whole thing and it could just burst into flames at any moment. Our, our tour guide went told us that they they couldn't plug it in because her little light bubbles would get so hot it would burn up. And we were like, oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's not do that. Well, yeah, because it was just such a big shock, too. If if your mind was like, well, this is the first new Star Wars I gotta, I'm thinking about. A New Hope and what A New Hope was like. Leia had one white dress pretty much through the whole movie and then a different white dress at the end. And here Queen Amidala has a different dress literally in every scene. And and almost the next one, each one is almost more outrageous than the previous one. It's just in a movie full of so much outrageousness, the fact that even just dresses are in there blowing people's minds is so good. I have always been really partial to the end of the movie, the parade gown. It's a good one. Maybe it's because like when a lot of the times when she's doing official queen stuff, she's got that that like kabuki theater, the the white makeup and stuff. And I always kind of liked in the parade now that the ultimate mystery has been solved and you know Padme was actually Queen Amidala, that smile she gives Anakin is is so good. I love that the movie ends on that and Anakin's Anakin's smirk back to her. Well, you know what I I never really thought about until just now that it is almost like the whole where Phantom Menace is really more Return of the Jedi than A New Hope. And it is almost like Padme is Vader throughout the movie and she's in her Senate or her queen suit. And it's not really Padme, it's Amidala. And then... When she talks to the Gungans and like takes her mask off and says it's really her, when she's in that dress at the end, it's like she's the Padme version of Anakin's Force Ghost that shows up and smiles at Luke. And she's kind of wearing this white ghostly outfit, but she's finally taken her makeup off and she's 
her her best version of herself and yeah smiling at the skywalker boy just like anakin will at the end of jedi very true <laughs> i love in the visual dictionary uh that it says the silken petals of the dress resemble huge lovely flowers found near amidala's home village the flowers bloom only once every 88 years heralding a time of special celebration so and a neat thing with the queen's dresses in dressing a galaxy is there's a paragraph talking about how they decided to embrace the idea of there being a dress code and a precise decorative style for the ceremonial regalia incumbent upon both queens and their handmaidens which symbolizes the enduring aspects of their role in Naboo society. So basically they're carrying over the shapes and, and themes of the dresses between the handmaidens and Padme to the other queens in the later prequels. So, for example, they mentioned that uh, Corday's costume in as a decoy in Episode 2 is in an off-white fabric, but it mirrors the black dress she wears in Palpatine's office in Episode 1. And then the queen in episode three, during the funeral procession, her dress is kind of mirrored with the episode one, the gray Palpatine office dress she wears when she's Queen Amidala. So there's kind of a lot of thought going into the kind of the, the Naboo queen style and carrying that over to the other queens in the other films. Like we've said a thousand times in this episode, I mean, you got to just hand it to Trisha Bigger. She was the costume designer for all three of the prequels. And there's a cohesion like that of this is all one story taking place. We wouldn't have had that, that level of detail. I mean, you think not, you know, as the prequels went on and the evolution of Anakin's costume from episode two to episode three, or the subtle evolution of Obi-Wan Kenobi's costume through all three of the prequel films. I mean, she... I think we say once a week that something is highly underrated in Star Wars, but the the work of Trisha Bigger is is one that really is, in my opinion. Well, it is. She really understood and embraced the idea of telling the story through visuals, the way John Williams can tell the story through music. She tells the story through the costumes in a way that even if you're not listening to the dialogue, you're just looking at the movie, you can understand what's happening just based on what people are wearing and get a feel for the story. I know. I'd love to see her come back and be involved in Star Wars again. But then she did work on the prequels for, I think, what do we say, like eight, eight years. So maybe she needs a break. She could be Star wars out, but it'd be great to have her back. Yeah, well, it'd be great to have her back for maybe one of the Disney Plus shows. Yeah, or even to have her come back for Cassian, to have her come back for something maybe not set in the prequel era and use her knowledge of the Star Wars universe in something else. Really, at the end of the day, whether you enjoy The Phantom Menace or not, there really hasn't been, that I can think of, a movie with just this amount and intensity of costumes, really, in the 20 years since Phantom Menace came out. But, you know, like they don't make movies that just with that much attention to costumes. And generally, if they get in that ballpark, it's it's historical. So it's recreating something that maybe existed in the past with just a little bit of a Hollywood flourish to it where I just can't think of other than maybe, you know, the Lord of the Rings movies where you had this level of detail in creating brand new cultures that never existed and doing it at a level where 
you never for a second don't think it's a real thing. Yeah, I think the upcoming Dune movie has the possibility to be like that. But then we've got a new Star Wars movie, mystery movie being announced every month from Lucasfilm. So the future of not only Star Wars on TV, but Star Wars on the big screen if we're dealing with all new eras, not, you know, not the age of rebellion or the age of Republic or age of resistance or whatever, you know, whoever's doing the costumes for whatever comes next on the big screen, uh, they're, they, you'd think they'd have to take influence from the bold decisions that Trisha Bigger made back in 1997, 98, 99. Trisha Bigger, wherever you are, we salute you. We thank you. <laughs> And we hope to see you coming back to the galaxy far, far away. You not only made Star Wars better, you made it bigger. (laughs) The fashion is a fashion that has to last forever. It can't say, oh, that was made in 1980 or that was made in 2005. And I think that's been accomplished. I mean, I don't think, you know, 50 years from now, you're going to know when those movies were made because they're they're doing the harder thing which is to not be uh, fashionable Kenner's Star Wars collection each sold separately large-sized Darth Vader with his lightsaber Princess Leia champion of the rebel cause with her defender Luke Skywalker he can swing him into action on his grappling hook and load Chewbacca's laser crossbow Star Wars large-sized action figures up to 15 inches tall and ready for action. Large-sized Darth Vader, Chewbacca, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, each sold separately, new from Kenner. Okay, so it is that time of the month where we say thank you to everyone out there on the Blast Points Army on Patreon. Thank each and every one of you for supporting us over there on Patreon and getting all the cool bonus stuff every month that we do. All right, so a big thank you to Ian, Robert, Nathan, Matthew, Darren, Brittany, Christina, and Adam, Matthew, Drew, Elliot, Colleen, Andy, Rick, Ira Bell, Nick, Kathy G, Kevin, Regina. Thank you to Jesse, Doug, Kara, Susanna, Francisco, Tim, Chris, Patrick, Lawrence, Andrew, Joseph, Kevin, Sam, Robbie, and David. Thanks to Ryan, Dustin, Jordan, Kathy, Kit, Stephen, Allison, Anuj, Ash, Connie, Jay, Josh, Jeremy, Ryan, Adam, and Brian. Thank you to Patrick, Angelo, David, Joe, John, Steve, Marie, Jay, Jason, Amy, Tracy, Dave, Terrence, Mario, Stephanie, Jonathan, and Matthew. Thanks to Rodney, Amy, Craig, Steve, Brandon, Marissa, Neil, Michelle, Olivia, Kevin, Sean, Brandon, Richard, Tom, Ian, Aiden, Christian, and Chris. Thank you to Angel, Hammy, Candace, Matthew, Jen, Jesse, Jake, Emily, Amber, Sinatra, Will, Jackson, Michael, Paul, and Carrie. And thanks to Justin, Mike, Rob, Jonathan, Khadija, John, Katie, Drac, Amy, Matt, Jeff, John, Eric, and Todd. Thank you each and every one of you so much. We love you all. We appreciate what you do for us so much, how you support the show. It's October. 
like we said, we're getting back to the galaxy far, far away with the Patreon this month. We're going to have some really cool stuff. Patreon's going to get out of control in the next couple months. It's exciting and it's terrifying. <laughs> if if it wasn't for the Blast Points Army, we probably couldn't do Snoketoberfest again. <laughs> we, we would have been too tired. Way too tired. Thank you so much. And yeah, Mandalorian's coming and it's going to get hot on Patreon. Oh, it's going to get hot. 2020 Clone Wars. Patreon's going to be out of control. So thanks, everybody. Thank you. 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 Hi, JJ Abrams here. On behalf of the entire cast and crew of Star Wars Episode 7, thank you. What's up? Uh, is the only here. Just want to say uh, Blast Points Rules. That's Thanks awesome. for watching. Thank you so much. And these Blast Points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise. know what i'm about to say apple podcast reviews we love them we read them on episodes so if you are listening on some kind of apple thing and you want to help the show in the mysterious way with apple the podcast the reviews go on there write a little something cool and we will read yours on an upcoming show and after that check out our website blastpointspodcast.com you can get back episodes i believe i hear rumblings darth field might be coming back I watched a spoiler video on YouTube that <laughs> gave a sneak that Darthfield comics are coming back. So, And after that, follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, sign up for the Super Chill Group. It's a Blast Points party every single day. Hopefully, people talking about Babu Frick every day over there on the Chill Group. We're not forgetting about Claude. But Claude might have a new friend with Babu. Maybe Babu lives in Claude's belly. <laughs> like a kangaroo pouch. He jumps out. I hope they're all friends with Chewbacca. Same with Bulio. They're all just these all the weirdos hanging out with Chewbacca now that Chewbacca owns the Falcon. He's just letting all the weirdos in. Han's gone. He's like, I've made some new friends. Bunch of sweethearted weirdos. Named <laughs> Bulio, Babu, and Claude. Oh, Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> we will see you soon, Rise of Skywalker. But that about wraps up episode 189 here. Phantom Menace year is not over yet. It's still coming. The party's still going. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you.
about Kevin Feige. We're going to be talking about Snoktoberfest. <laughs> May the force be with all of you.